Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Kevin, what are you thankful for this month of November? Well, Rob, I'm thankful that we have so many great behind-the-curtain listeners and that so many of them financially support us so we can continue to capture the stories of Broadway's most legendary performers. And support my Hervé Villachez habit. Oh, God. I'm not going to do it. I won't do it. Want to help us? Oh. I'm just kidding. Want to help us be even more thankful this November? Head over. Head on over. I've had too much cranberry sauce. <laughs> head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And search for Behind the curtain broadway's living legends and set a monthly donation even a dollar a month helps us we are entirely self-funded so please help keep us on the air i feel like pbs it's like PB- I was your just contributions say- help us continue doing what we are doing here is a tote bag uh what are we doing this november rob why being thankful that we can interview legends eating stuffing and singing turkey lurkey time yes i know it's a christmas song but it's about turkey go lay down rob we are thankful for all of you and we'll be even more thankful if you you can head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast Plus. You can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and the Broadway Podcast Network. I do not think there is an aspect of the theatrical world that today's guest has not inhabited. This man wears 90 million different hats in his career. He has been an actor, a writer, an agent, a librettist, a production associate, an agent, a producer. The list goes on and and on and on. His book, which you all need to read, is called Supporting Player, My Life Upon the Wicked Stage, and it is a mesmerizing exploration of his 80-plus year journey in the arts. He had a front row seat to just about every era in musical theater history and the ear of the theatrical community's most influential artists. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as George Abbott, Lerner and Lowe, Rex Harrison, Bob Fosse, Gwen Verdon, Ethel Merman, Hal Prince, Ron Field, Cheetah Rivera, Julie Andrews, and that's just scratching the surface, and so many more. Here is the agent to the stars, the one and only Richard Sapp. Wow, I don't know who he is. <laughs> when you say my 80-year career, I was only 12 when I started. Yes, I was, exactly. I wasn't 20 or 30 or anything like that. So. <laughs> and when I say 12, I wasn't really acting in the, or doing anything, except I saw my first play ever in my life at 12, at, what, at 12 years old. What play was it? It was a comedy by Clifford Goldsmith called What a Life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And George Abbott directed it. Right. And someone my mother knew was a friend of somebody's who got us tickets. We'd never, I'd never been to the theater. And uh, we see this thing, and I, I didn't know what a play was. And I was surprised to go into the Biltmore Theater, and um, unlike the movies, which I was already nuts about, there was no MGM lion roaring at the beginning, and there was no trumpet blast from 20th Century Fox. The lights went down, the curtain went up, and suddenly I really felt I was in another sphere, another world. And the play happened to be about a high school boy, Henry Aldrich, and his problems. And so I certainly identified with it being a young person myself. And I said to myself before I left the theater that afternoon, I really think I have to spend my life in a building like this. And I kind of have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> and until, it took all until I was 18, I guess, before I ever got paid to do it. But... But um, those years were spent seeing all of those wonderful, wonderful plays and musicals, and many of them were. Not all of them were, mm-hmm. 
in the 40s. And, and uh, then I got my first equity card at, in 1946. Mm -hmm. And so began this journey, which seems to be continuing yeah. now that I enter my eighth career you know, in the theater. And, and what is your eighth career now for our listeners? I've been with the Autocritic Circle for almost 10 years now mm -hmm. as a critic. And it's a joy for me because when I see a musical or a play, I do have one advantage over other critics in that I have been in all of those roles. <laughs> I've been on both sides of the yeah, footlights. Indeed, yeah. I know what it means to write a play, to write a musical. Fail or succeed doesn't matter, it's yeah. that you've done it. And I know what the author, nobody sits down to write a flop no. or a bad play, but they sometimes make a mistake. And so I bring to it, I don't want to be sentimental or, or Pollyanna-ish about it. Some plays are very bad. But I always try to see what he was trying to say, the author, mm -hmm. or what the actor was trying to do or to play, and did he succeed or where did he not quite achieve what he hoped to, to, to achieve? But I think I'm one of those who doesn't know what he was trying to do yeah. because I've done it myself. <laughs> yeah. you know? So, so um, you approach your reviews from that angle of trying to understand what they were attempting to I accomplish. I think it's important for a theater a critic to love theater, and some of them seem that not to. Yeah, yeah. I quite agree. And so, some of them are very patronizing, superior, intellectually superior, and they may be, but the reader is not in the same league. And I have critics I really don't pay much attention to, some. Some, yeah. some I admire tremendously. Walter Kerr was a great As critic. True, yeah, yeah. Because he loved the theater. He wasn't a, a, a major playwright, and he wasn't an actor. Mm -hmm. But he understood what was going on up there, and yeah. boy, that's very useful, yeah. constructive. Even when he disliked something, I think the people whom he disliked understood what he was saying. Yeah, absolutely. And responded to it, yeah. I've just finished reading Neil Simon's incredible memoir, which is very long and very detailed, mm -hmm. and very unself-serving. Oh. Yes. I was delighted to see how tough he is on himself. Yeah. But he would be one of those who would quote a critic who didn't like a play of his, and he would try to understand what he had not achieved. That, I think, is terrific. That's maybe why he lasted so long. You just live with the hits and the flops, yeah. and you just try for the best you can do. Keep on trying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting to think that, you know, back in the golden age of theater, quite often if a show was out of town in Boston, the playwright or the writers would get together with the local critic over there and discuss the review and, you know, try to figure out Absolutely. what was working, what wasn't working. And, and that and, doesn't and happen so much Some anymore. of the old pros, the old really greats, the, the Roger Rogerses and the Alan Lerners and what have you, those people began to respect certain critics. I, I know... I think it was Hal Prince, among others, who always wanted to go to Boston because Kevin Kelly, the You're critic in Boston, yeah. would tell him or tell the world what he thought was lacking. And very often, he was more on the nose than the director was. <laughs> it would be very useful. Yeah. On the other hand, there were times when uh, someone as, as talented and visionary as Hal was would not listen to a critic. I remember when Cabaret opened out of town, it had very good reviews, but they didn't, as a general rule, like the performance that Jill Haworth was giving as Sally Bowles. Mm -hmm. And Prince was determined to keep her. They did see a few other girls while they were out of town, but he wanted what she offered. And she remained in it right through the opening and then the next year. The point is that because the, one critic in New York didn't care for her work either. And because of that, I think the public coming to see it 
because there were so many other good reviews that they did come to see it in droves, mm -hmm. gave her the opposite reaction to, oh, gee, she's not supposed to be so good. Because they thought she was much better mm. than that critic did, she would get the biggest hand of the night, even huh. over Joel Grey. It was fascinating they, they adopted her, because she was very good in yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. But that just shows how those critics can be uh, right or wrong. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I know Neil Simon's book tells you of the third act of the um, play, The Odd Couple. Oh, yeah. Yeah. which he didn't know why, but he knew something was wrong. It was going downhill. It worked right through the second act, but somehow it didn't build from there. He didn't know what to do with it. Well, I don't remember. You'll have to read the book, because I've forgotten who it was who said to him. I, oh, I think it was the director, Mike Nichols. I think it was Mike Nichols on that one. He did so many plays with him. It may have been uh, Gene, Gene Sachs, but I think it was Mike Nichols, who said, you know what's missing? those wonderful girls from Act Two, the Pigeon Sisters. This act needs them back. We miss them. And they put them in the mm -hmm. third act. He wrote a new scene for them. And it went like gangbusters. Yeah. So he didn't think of that. Were your parents supportive of you, you know, going yes. into the? Yes, in a word, yes. But my parents were not theater people. Mm -hmm. My father was a businessman, a small businessman, but he had a very nice small business which supported us very pleasantly through the Depression years. And my mother was just an interesting lady who loved to go to the theater, but we didn't have anybody in show business in my very large family. So I was kind of the odd one out. But they knew I loved it, so they were totally supportive in that they always saw everything I ever did, even from the time I was an amateur, back in camp, you know, school yeah, plays. Catskills, yeah. School plays. Um, and my father used to say, I don't understand what you like about it all, but you, you know, if you do it, do it well. That was all. That was encouraging. That's good advice. You know, he didn't help, but he didn't hurt at all. Yeah. And I didn't feel guilty about it. So I've never had second thoughts about going into something more sensible, if you yeah. want to call it that. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's interesting, though, that I've ended up in so many aspects of it because I started out the way you should end up. I was really quite successful in the beginning. I was only um, 21 or so by the time I got my first part on Broadway. It turned out to be a hit. Yes. And which was? Uh, Darkness at Noon with Claude Rains, whom I adored and respected. I had a decent role. It wasn't large, but it was key. Yeah. I had some nice reviews. It ran eight, nine months on Broadway. Then it closed for the summer and went on the road yeah across the nation for nine months, and I was offered the role again, this time with Edward G. Robinson playing the starring role. So I was having a good beginning. I had two years of work, some recognition. I had an agent by the time it closed. But I had this, that next summer after I was finished with it totally, I thought to myself, you know, I've loved this, but I don't know that I love the life of it. The work I adore but you can't work all the time. Yeah. And in between, when you close, unless you get stardom, you begin again. What's next? You start auditioning all over again. I found that instability a little tough to take. Yeah. So I thought, I've got to remain in the theater. I love it. But I don't have to act. So I'll look around and see what can be made available. And the one thing that came along after about eight months was a job with the talent agency run by Audrey Wood and Bill Liebling, her husband. So I started as a television agent. 
And I, I didn't want to work in television as much as I did in the theater, but it's in a, a way in. Right. And I was working with all these theater people I knew to get them jobs in TV series. And I had a good year with them. But when they sold their agency after one year to MCA, an international dynasty of an big, agency. Big, big agency. And then I'm suddenly in a company. They took me with them. Right. But they couldn't place me where I was before. So I was stuck in an area called TV sales, which meant I was now taking cans of film of right. pilots to the ad agencies to see who'd buy a series. I didn't want to be in business. Salesman, basically. You were salesman. That yeah. had nothing to do yeah, with the arts. You shared a secretary. I remember I was just yeah, reading that. Yes, yeah. I did. And I, I, I didn't really like what I was doing. So I went to the man who hired me there, the, the vice president, Herb Rosenthal. I said, I love this company and I'm very comfortable, but I don't like what I'm doing. I want to be in the theater. And he said, well, be patient because these things do come up. There's nothing open now. Within months, David Hocker, who had the Department of Musical Theater, needed an assistant, and I got the job. That changed everything because I loved what I was doing. And he would sign the stars, and then I would sort of help service them, right. as they said. But he was kind enough to say to me, in addition, I want you to have your own little list of people that you find from the beginning and build them. Oh, wow. And that was wonderful because I could go to every black box theater in New York. I could go to every off-off Broadway anywhere. I could go to colleges. In fact, one college was Princeton. And I went to see the Princeton show, which was just done by amateurs. And it's just delicious. It was written by a kid, 19 years old, whose name is Clark Gessner. So I went back and said, you know, if you ever decide to stick with this when you get out of school... I would love to represent you. Okay. He did. He wrote Charlie Brown, and my agency was established. You know, exactly. It ran I mean, for eight years. But the point is that uh, that's how I would find talent. And, and one day I would go off off Broadway to see a little show that had no advance sale and was playing in a little black box down three steps on East Fourth Street, called the Shoestring Review, which you know was just new new kids doing nothing on no money. That's why they called it the Shoestring right. Review. And in this show is a girl called B. Arthur, uh, who was 12 or something, yeah. and this little girl called Cheetah Rivera. Uh -huh. At that well, time, she was called Cheetah O'Hara, right. <laughs> because just, she admired Maureen O'Hara. Yeah. You know? And uh, I couldn't get over her. She was so incredibly unique that I went backstage, and I think backstage meant the toilet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was behind a curtain somewhere. Yeah. And I said, you don't know me, and I don't know you really, but I love what you did tonight. And if you ever decide to have an agent, because she didn't have one, I would love to be it. Well, she nobody had ever asked her yet, so I got her. And I stayed with her for the next 20 years of my life when I was remained an agent. And that's why I'm grateful that um, I, I knew I, I had to work in the theater. It didn't matter at what. I think if, if someone had asked me to become a box office treasurer, sure. I probably would have done it. Yeah. Uh, but that was the only job I could get in the beginning was this agency job. I hadn't thought of being an agent. Right. You know, to an you actor... You set out to do that when you were a kid. No, oh. and, and, and to, an, to an actor, an agent is sort of the other yeah. side of the footlights. You don't pay much attention. Right. But I'm wrong, because some of the agents were very creative 
Some of them were just booking agents. They just wanted to get you a job. They didn't care about your career. What makes a successful actor-agent relationship, or what were some of the most fruitful ones? Well, there are two ways to go about it. I mean, there are very successful agents who simply are very good at finding you work. And they're not interested in your life story or your career, but just to keep people working. Yeah. And that's called a booking agent. But Bill Liebling was more like that. Mm -hmm. He didn't build relationships with actors. He just got them jobs. Uh, He would send them on the road for a year or two, and then commissions come piling in. But my favorite agents were those who, like Audrey Wood, would take on a client like Tennessee Williams before he was anyone, but recognize the talent and say, I'm going to make this happen with you, and stay with them through their whole careers as a rule. Uh, And that's the kind of agent I wanted to be. I wanted to have 12 clients rather than 50, Mm -hmm. but I would really stay with them and, and try to create situations where they would be able to flourish. Mm-hmm. But that was very satisfying, especially with someone like Cheetah. And there were others. There was uh, uh, Linda Lavin, who was beginning with a chorus job in yeah. a family affair. There were, there were others of, of um, Phyllis Newman, who, who made her name mostly in television, but who was very good on stage as well and won a Tony for her first Broadway show. It takes more than talent. You have to have the guts and the drive and the ambition the stick-to-itiveness and the ability to be, to, use, miss, to take flops as part of the course, they all had them. Yes. But uh, there, there are always problems, um, even with shows as good as Gypsy. I remember with Dolly, Hello Dolly, which I also loved, and, and, w- and was, well, it's going to sound awfully self-serving, but I can't Go help it. it. It's yeah, the way it happened. Jerry Herman was a lifelong friend of my partner, Leo Bookman. Mm-hmm. They were kids together. Oh. And so was Phyllis Newman. They were like three mm-hmm. who wanted to come to New York and make it. Mm-hmm. And J- Jerry wrote, um, when, when Jerry started writing for the theater, he had an agent at William Morris mm-hmm. because Leo wasn't, his friend, Leo Bookman, was not handling writers at all. He worked with movie people. So he, Jerry was with William Morris, but there came a time when he came to us and said his agent at William Morris had left, and he was now working with her assistant. And that was, he had no relationship with that assistant, (coughs) so now he would be available to come to us, because I made it clear I wanted him. This is after Milk and Honey, but before Dolly. So he said, well, look around and see what you can find for me. My contract with the Morris office is over, expires in December, and this was in October. So I start canvassing around town, and one night at poker, I played poker once a week, yes. Mike Stewart was playing poker there, uh, the book writer, yeah. and he was new too. He'd done Carnival, and he had done Birdie, but he hadn't become big, big, big yet. And he said, well, I'm working on one called Hello, Dolly, based on The Matchmaker. We don't have a composer for that. And Jerry Herman sounds like he might be someone I could work with. They were contemporaries. So he met him. And he liked him, and he suggested him to Merrick. And Merrick said, no, I got to have a, a, a name for this. Uh, I don't want to, I don't take a chance. The milk and honey was fine, but it doesn't show me anything that I need for Dolly. It isn't funny, and it's, you know, whatever. But I'll tell you what, you can write some songs on spec if you want. Let me hear some stuff of yours for this. Jerry went home, and I swear to you, in one weekend, he wrote four songs for Dolly. One of them was actually the melody of a song he'd written for a musical that never got produced. That was called The Spirit of the Chase. 
And that was the title song in the spirit of the chase. And it went, note for note, it became put on your Sunday clothes. Oh, wow. And that's one of the four that he brought to Merrick on Monday. And he, I don't know what the other three were, I forgot. It could well have been Hello Dolly, the song itself. And he got the job. He called us from Merrick's office and said, I'm going to do this. So we brought champagne out and we celebrated our new client. And the day later, his lawyer, Bob Montgomery, called me to say, I have the saddest news in the world. It's not Jerry's fault. He thought the contract with the Morris office ended in December. It ends a year from December. So he's committed to, they represent him. You can handle him, but they have to be paid. Well, what could we do? I mean, we'd only made one phone call, but still, it, it's the phone call that changed his life, you know? <laughs> so what Jerry did, believe it or not, was he said to Bob Montgomery, look, they got me the job. I want to pay them anyway. And pay the William Morris office too, 10% to each, right? And we couldn't do that. I mean, not for one phone call. As much as we needed it in our little business, we said we'd be very grateful for half of that. So for the next eight years, we got half the commission. And Morris never knew it. So they know it now. Yeah. <laughs> so we, know, I love hearing these, because we, we don't get to hear these stories of what went on behind those closed doors. That's why it's know, called Behind the Curtain, your show. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Thank it's, you. it's just fascinating because we don't know. You no, know, a lot goes on. A lot goes yeah. on. Yes, the deal making and and making just how Hello Dolly, you could argue that it almost happened because of a poker tournament. <laughs> well, for him, maybe yeah, yes, that's true. It, it can be as fluky as that. And you know, your life takes a turn. I'm sure your lives will too as you go on, because when I was at MCA for eight and a half years. I was happy there because I was doing exactly what I wanted and being paid well enough. But we, the, the agency closed overnight. The government said it was a monopoly, that MCA owned a studio, a movie studio, as well as a talent agency. You can't be the buyer and the seller. So they have to choose. Well, they chose the movie studio. So suddenly the agency's closed overnight and all the agents are free and all the clients are free. So we had about 10 minutes to decide what to do. And Ted Ashley, who was another big agent, bought up all the name agents at MCA, Audrey, Kay, Jay Sanford. He just took them all in to Ashley Famous. And he couldn't take all of us second tier people, my level, Leo Bookman's level, Stark Heseltine, who handled actors level. So the three of us got together and said, why should we go to work for someone else and stuff? We're beginning, we can take all our clients with us if we hurry up because they're free to go anywhere. Right. But we worked with many of these clients for seven and eight years at the MCA agency. Redford, uh, Stark saw Redford in a play at, school, at the American Academy and asked him to become a client. So he was with him from day one. And other people, Elizabeth Ashley, Stark had found somewhere before they had any Broadway credits. So we had invested years into these people and they were now about ready to really happen. And we were able to open Heseltine, Bookman and Sepp, our agency, within weeks uh, with this client list of about 60 people, none of whom were stars, but about to be. And that was what gave us a good beginning. But you, never, you couldn't have planned that. No. <laughs> And now, funnily enough, after, after we had, when we opened the agency, we were a big success, 
for about eight years. We got up to 1962, and I have to get the years straight, 54 to 62. Yeah, um, oh yes, Cabaret was, uh, uh, it was not 62, it was 69. So, yeah, I've, lost, I've lost a decade here. It was 69, and Cabaret had opened in 66, a show of mine that I handled the authors of. Oh, Abrin Kander, anyway. William Morris handled the other half of the show, uh, Joe Masteroff, the book writer, and the source material, John Van Druten, the play, and uh, Christopher Isherwood, the stories. So the deal was a big one, though. Someone was ready to pay a million bucks for this movie rights. And that was a big thing for our little agency to have that kind of client or getting half of that. Um, the Morris office said to me, their lawyer said, listen, you've not done a movie deal before, and this is complicated, so why don't you let me make the deal, and I'll give you half the commission on Evan Kander as well. Thanks a lot. I put eight years into them to be giving you the commission for that. No, thank you. So I didn't allow it. And he did make a very good movie deal. But the, oddly enough, there was one thing missing when I, he showed me the draft of the contract. I said, you know, the way this reads... They have the rights to the material, but if they want to use any other material in the movie, they can. I don't want anybody's music in that movie except theirs. I don't think there's any reason for it to happen, but it could, and the contract allows it. So I said, I want a clause that says, oh, any music in this movie must be written by Kendra Neb. And you know what happened? The movie was made, story was changed considerably. There was no no Jack, uh, no, um, love story between the, you know, Lotta right, Lenya and right. Jack Guilford. But there was music occasionally when somebody, Eliza, as, as, as uh, Sally Bowles, would turn on a radio. Music would come out. They could have played God Bless America. They had to play something from that Cantor and Ebb wrote. But when we were, when we got to be, and when it was, I'd been at it for, um, oh, so CMA came along because of that movie sale. They were representing the buyer buying it. And they suddenly noticed us, us little three guys, and said, you know, instead of us arguing with you or negotiating with you, we should own you. Would you like to join us at CMA? Which was Beagleman and Fields and Sam Cohn. And I didn't, none of us really ever wanted to be with a big company again. We were none of us married. We didn't have children to build a legacy for. And so that wouldn't be any fun. We were going back to meetings and copies and memos. And, but they made us a deal we couldn't refuse. They offered us a certain number of shares of stock in ACMA, which was publicly traded, and a five-year contract at a much higher salary than I was paying us. You know, So I had to take the deal. And we all agreed, we'll do it. But we'll remain an autonomous unit within CMA. And that's how it worked for the first year of our term. And we had to sign a five-year employment contract. We had to give them five years guarantee that we'd be there. After the first year, they didn't like us anymore. They didn't like us because they, they didn't have any room for us. So they left us in our old address, which suited us fine. Yeah. And the clients didn't feel they were now with a huge agency. So we were there a year, but then they made room for us because they wanted us on the premises which means keeping an eye on us and coming to meetings with us and all the rest of that. And that's when I began to think, I don't like this anymore. I know it's another change of career, but I don't want to be an agent this way. Because now most of my deals, my clients were stars. 
I had Cheetah, I had Cantor and Ebb, I had Clark Gessner, I had a number of other people who were under my wing who were names, <coughs> you know, uh, not as big as Merman, but, but stars, yeah. Stephen Douglas, that kind of thing. Um, Robert Goulet, and uh, I didn't enjoy that as much. It wasn't like the fun of finding and developing. Now you're just meeting with lawyers mm -hmm. and tax accountants. It's very different. I'm not a businessman. Mm -hmm. So I went to Sam Cohn and I said, I want to go back to what I love most. Now I can afford to. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of money, but I have enough to pay my rent and feed me if I don't make a nickel. But I want to go back to the theater as an actor and maybe as a writer. How old were you when you made that transition? Back? In my early 40s. You it was 19. It was, I have to think, because there's so okay. many decades in my yeah, life. Yeah, 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 sure. But I was about 45, something oh, like that. Yeah. That's amazing. A strange way to come back to acting. Well, I'd a been, completely different type. You know, you had a, I was 25 age. when I left, yeah. Right, right. And, you were like, and now I'm 45. And I thought, well, I'll begin an acting career the way um, John Houseman did. He was 70, and he'd begun his life as a very important director, producer, introduced Orson Welles to the world, produced a lot of things with Orson Welles. But at 70, he took a job in this thing called The Paper Chase, which was just a two-hour film. And then it became a series. He became a star. He began his acting career as a star. I thought that would be the way I'd like yeah. to do it. Yeah. Didn't work that way. <laughs> I was making the rounds, doing extra work in television, extra work in film, then bit parts in film, and then off-off Broadway and showcases. And finally, I got me an agent as an actor because one of the showcases worked. It was a, a, a play of, um, it was a play by Arthur Lawrence. No, oh God, it was Big Fish, Little Fish. Is that Arthur Lawrence? It was a play that had Hume Cronin in it and Jason Robards originally. Oh, okay. And I got to play the Hume Cronin role. Yeah. So I got an agent out of that. And suddenly I'm a working actor, not doing great, but I'm making a, I didn't need to make a lot of money because mm -hmm. I had my income from the agency years. I wasn't in this to be a star. I really just wanted to be an actor. And that's a God's honest truth. Well, I suppose when you, when you choose, you know, when you're 21, it's one thing, but when you're 45 and you have this successful career as an agent, but you say, no, this is what really makes me I want to do this, yeah. It, you're doing it for the right reasons. Absolutely, you're, because you love the work. Exactly. And I did love the work. And I was doing films as well. Yeah. Very small roles in very big pictures. When you return to acting at 45 and then going into casting offices, were people like... No, they didn't know me because I'd been out of it for so long. Oh, that's 20 right. 20 years. Yeah. The whole so new world was there. Now, I have to ask, before we move on to your acting career, um, not only did you get Jerry Herman, Hello, Dolly, and I'm, I'm going to... Well, don't put it that way. Well, I'm going I'm to blow your horn a little bit. Submitted if that's it okay. for it, yes. The way you submit... Okay. How did um, Hal Prince get his first directing job? Well, his very first, I don't know, because he did direct a road company of, uh, maybe for the Phoenix Theater or something, yeah. of The Matchmaker. So we'll say Broadway. How did he get yeah, his first yeah. Broadway well, directing? Well, he got it by my being the agent for Eben Kander. No, this was Kander and the Goldmans, the first yes, musical yeah. Kander wrote, called A Family yeah. Affair. My cousin Andrew produced it, because nobody else would, <laughs> and... We were in Philadelphia trying it out, and it was in some trouble. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't good enough. And the direction was not right. The, the director was the one who'd done the Fantastics, and he had done a great job on that. Word Baker. Word Baker, but it was not his material, really. He wasn't, just wasn't in good casting. So we had to get rid of him. 
and uh, try another viewpoint. And there was very little money left, but enough to spend two or three weeks in Philadelphia. And I, and I brought down Teak DaCosta and Carol Haney and at least one other, maybe Bob Fosse, I've forgotten who the third was. They'd come down to Philadelphia. They liked it, but nobody wanted to make a commitment to take it over. So we had nobody. And I thought, you know, Prince is a big producer by this point. He's done three shows that are hits, four maybe with West Side Story, but he has never directed on Broadway, and he wants to. And we all knew that, but nobody was offering him jobs. He didn't offer David Merrick jobs to direct, you know. So he didn't have any offers and no agent to get him one. So I asked if he'd be interested. He said, I sure would. I love Candor and, uh, Candor. and he knew the Goldmans. And um, so I suggested him to Andy and he came down and he took the job. And that was his first job. And he did enough work on it to say he would be willing to be billed as the director because it was up to him because word was not any longer and he was being paid off whatever that deal was. But uh, so it says directed by Harold Prince. And that's the first time. So he, he was so grateful to me that years later when he was directing and I was acting again, you know, going 20 years later, and I auditioned for this play. Uh, I had auditioned for him before. Pacific Overtures was to be a play before it became a musical. It didn't have a score. And I read for one of the roles in it, and I got a very nice report from the agent saying, he liked your reading very much, we'll see. But it didn't remain a play, it became a musical, so that was forgotten. A year or two later came End of the World, and he wanted to see me about a part, and I would love to go in and read for it. But I happened to be on one of my rare vacations out of the country. And I didn't want to come home four days early on a two-week trip just to read, so vague. And he said, okay, I know Dick Seff well enough to know that he would get through to the finals so he can come in just for the finals. So I came in a week later for the final and I got that part. Oh my goodness. And he said to me, I finally got to say thank you. Oh. Is that sweet? That's class. What was it like being at the first public performance of My Fair Lady? Oh, that's, oh, that's, that needs a whole book. That, <laughs> Yeah, I can. I know every moment of the day, because I it was it was a Saturday night. It was snowing. Right. We were in New York, David Hawker and I, planning to come down on Monday for the opening night. This was the Saturday night preview in New Haven. In New Haven, New Haven. at the Schubert Theater, and David's in the office Saturday morning, making a contract for Ethel Merman to do Happy Hunting next season. He's there with the producer Joe Malziner, etc. I'm home. And he gets this call from either Moss Hart or probably from Herman Levin, the producer of My Fair Lady. David, we need you here. Rex is a problem. He's terrified. He's just rehearsed with the orchestra for the first time in his life. He's used to the piano. He's never been in a musical. He says, I can't hear them, they can't hear me, I can't do it tonight in front of an audience, that's ridiculous. So let's cancel the preview, we'll get this fixed up by Monday. But the he couldn't do that because New Haven was, first of all, it was snowing. Right. And secondly, the theater manager wasn't buying that at all. Uh, he, uh, anyway, David had to go to New Haven immediately. So he called me up and said, go to my apartment, get a pair of pajamas or whatever, and come with me. So we take the train. By the time we got to New Haven, it was about 6 o'clock, and it was snowing hard, so hard we had to walk to the theater, which is quite a distance. Yeah. And we get there, and 
they pounce on him, on David. And everybody's kind of calm except the theater manager says, I'm not calm. I can't tell 1,100 people who just paid the babysitter for the evening that they have to go home because the star is nervous. Mm-hmm. You've got to do something about this. I can't, well, because they were going to put on Chris Hewitt, who was the understudy. Mm-hmm. But, he was also one of your clients, right? Yes, he was. Mr. He was. He played, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the teacher. Yeah, yeah. Um, whatever his name is. Um, and he understudied Harrison. Right. And uh, David Hucker had to go backstage and see Rex Harrison and tell him the facts are that if you don't do it, there could be some press that you don't need. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was furious. He said, I want someone up here representing me, not him, not them. But he was, she calmed him down and he agreed he'd do it if Moss would make a speech before the play to say they weren't ready. It's a crazy business we're in. <laughs> and uh, really, uh, so uh, we all went off, David and I, and had a little dinner and came back and at 8.30 it begins. And Moss Hart came out and said, ladies and gentlemen, relax. Mr. Harrison's never been better. Health, Miss Andrews is in lovely condition. They all loved that because they were sure he was announcing somebody was out. But all he said was, we have some very nasty turntables that are misbehaving terribly and they're not turning when they should. So we'll probably stop four or five times during the night. But you're New Haven people. You're used to premieres. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And please now relax and enjoy My Fair Lady. And off he goes. Well, it lasted until 1 a.m. Famously, yeah. But it didn't, the turntables didn't stop turning. It was just too long. <laughs> he never missed a beat or a note or anything. Of course. And when he finished the evening, he was preening a bit. I mean, he was rather pleased with himself, as <laughs> right. he should have been. Yeah. And Hocker was there with me at 1 o'clock in the morning. And now he's very hungry. <laughs> so we went over to Casey's which is usually closed at one o'clock in the morning because they stayed open for him. And he sits down and the waitress comes over and he says, I'd like a little soft egg, two, two minutes, just two minutes, I don't like three minutes. And so it's very specific. And she said, I could put her in a movie, she'd steal the movie. Mr. Harris, I've been here since eight o'clock this morning and I'm very tired. I'll do what I can, but please give me a break. You know? <laughs> and she left. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, podcast listeners, are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined 
to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway, and we hope that you make it your artistic home, too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. How did Candor meet Ebb? Two ways. Two ways. We're both responsible, really. I give Tommy Rolando full credit, too. Tommy, <clears throat> Fred and, the, and, the, and, and, uh, Jim, and Paul Klein were, were collaborators for a number of years. They had written uh, a musical called Simon Says, which was an original. They had written It Gives Me Great Pleasure, based on a book of uh, Emily Kimbrose. And they'd written... Um, uh, there was a third one. Well, Golden Gate, but that was with John. No, wait a minute. Uh, there was a third musical. I can't think what it was. But, oh yes, of course, Morning Sun, which was produced uh, at the Phoenix. Um, so they worked as a team. And John wrote a musical with Ken, with the Goldman Brothers called A Family Affair. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was what we got on with my cousin and Hal Prince took over. Right. But that wasn't a hit. Neither one, Neither one of them had a hit. I can't remember if they were the same season, but they were very close. So each was without the partner because after the after the three or four shows that they wrote together, Fred, his partner was married with a baby coming, and he just couldn't go on speculating any longer in a career that wasn't really paying very much, if anything. So he had to leave, and he needed a composer. The Goldmans weren't planning to be book writers the rest of their lives. They wanted to write plays and books, which they did. And so John needed a, a, a lyricist. So I handled both teams, and Tommy Volando, a very, pardon me, enterprising publisher of music, who loved theater writers. He had a, quite a monopoly on young writers, hoping they'd happen. And one team was Ebbs and one was Candor's. So he, they actually said, how do you do, Mr. Livingston, to each other in his office. But I introduced John, Fred to John's work by playing him the score that I had on an LP. Mm-hmm. And I loved Fred's comment on hearing John Candor's music for the first time in his life. I could work with him. <laughs> I swear to God, that's all he said. And then they met through Tommy. Were there any writers that you know you had your eye on, you were cultivating them, helping develop them, and for some reason it just... Absolutely. They never got luck, you know. Absolutely. I had a boy named Barry Grail who wrote with a man named Richard Chodosh, and they, Barry had written a musical which ran off-Broadway for about a year based on, oh, I'm losing my mind, but it was a hit mm. based on another work. Uh, before I knew him, that's when I asked him to sign with me. Mm. I handled people in all areas that didn't quite happen, like Buddy Schwab, uh, choreographer, mm-hmm. uh, several, uh, Ralph Beaumont. They, they, were, they all worked on Broadway, but they weren't all big names. Yeah. Ron Field was the big one. And I was with him from day one. Did a, a, a potential client ever come to you and you said, no, nah, this, this isn't going to work out, and then that person ended up having a fabulous career? Yes, there were two. Uh, the ones that got away, we'll say. Well, they didn't get away. I just wanted to kick them out, but <laughs> oh. it didn't work. Uh, one was Elaine Stritch, <laughs> whom I adored as an actress, but I couldn't take her as a client. Mm-hmm. There was never enough, you know, never. 
she was difficult. She requires a lot. <laughs> she certainly did, and she was worth it but to, to, from an audience point of view, but she was tough. Yeah. I, I remember she was in Showboat for, with Hal Prince directing, right. playing Parthian, and I was her agent, and uh, she was out on the road. It opened in Toronto. She'd call me every day. She said, I'm not living with those kids. Oh, they're all on the shaft, whatever hotel it was in Philadelphia or wherever they were. It wasn't good enough for her. She wanted to be somewhere grander. So she moved to someplace grander. Then she called me home and said, I'm all alone here. I got no one to talk to. You know? And the other was Charlotte Ray, who I adored too. She was so great, but she was a whiner. Oh. Yeah, she was a whiner. She'd always say, I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't like anything. But the others were all heaven. People like Linda Lavin and Virginia. Um, they weren't all big stars. Nancy Dusso. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. That's one of our first interviews. I yeah. was with her through her first three yeah. shows. There, there, there were a number that didn't happen, and I may have been wrong about some of them, too. For instance, I handled Stuart Damon through his whole career, and he was attractive, and he was a good singer, and he had a very good beginning, you know, playing the prince in Cinderella with Julie oh, yeah. Andrews and many things on Broadway. But there wasn't any magic there, really. He ended up in television... Not under me. He moved west and became a doctor on Hot Doctors Hospital or something yeah, forever. Yeah. Lovely boy. Hot Doctors Hospital. That was, that was funny because Stuart came in to see me and sang for me. I had a little room on Tuesdays. I'd see people every Tuesday, writers or actors. He'd come in, he sang. I said, yes, this is a very talented young... His name was Stuart Zonis. I said, but you don't look like a Stuart Zonis. When you, you're a long lady man. Well... My father won't mind. I guess I could change it. So I said, well, well, what do you call yourself? He didn't have a clue. I said, I don't know why I look at you when I think of Damon and Pythias. I swear to God, that's, you'll be Stuart Damon. <laughs> that's how it gets created. What a business. <laughs> oh, you know how I met him? His father came to see me. His father, Mr. Zonis, came in one day before I met him. Right. said, I got a boy you wouldn't believe. He's so beautiful. He talked just like that. And he sings like an angel. He's got to have an angel. I hear you're good. Would you take a look, take a chance with him? And the kid comes in and he's everything his father says he is. Oh, that's great. So that's I, great. I signed him up. So there were those people that were with me. Danny Meehan, who played a lead in Whoop Up for Cy Fewer. But it didn't, you know, they don't always go on for whatever reason. Some of them are personal. Some of them go to television. Some of them just disappear. It's a never-ending business, except now I am concerned that it doesn't seem like my theater anymore because of the jukebox musicals, which to us were anathema in our day. You didn't ever do a musical that had not an original score. You know, you could do... Uh, Eight Misbehaving was one oddity but uh, way back then, but everything was new, and uh, I don't like this, and I don't think it's healthy because we're going to run out of pop writers. Now we're going to get Michael Jackson's life, you know, in, in all pop tunes. Yeah. And, um, and then, of course, the revivals, which are for the older generation. And we get five and six and eight a year now. We used to get one. Uh, when did you... So you've written some plays. Yes, while I was still an agent, I wanted but, to write. So that, you, you got the urge to write when you were an agent. Yes, well, I was, I'd always had it. Oh, you, you I wrote had a play it. when I was 18. Oh. But acting took over, and you can't do everything at once. And I obviously wasn't driven the way the young Terrence McNally was, or the oh, young sure. Manfred Wilson was. That's what they did. Yeah. 
and I was sort of mostly an actor. But I started to write in 1965, and I was only, well, I was, I was probably about 35, 38. Oh. Oh. But I wrote a play called The Whole Ninth Floor, because it was all about MCA, right. where I was working. On the ninth floor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and it, it was liked, and it was optioned by Norman Twain for Broadway, and he wanted to try it out in stock. So we did it in Paramus at the Playhouse in the Park with Alan Alda, and a wonderful cast. Uh, David Rounds was in it, so oh. many lovely people were in it. And, uh, and it worked well enough, but it wasn't really quite strong enough for Norman to bring it in. So it didn't go anywhere. It got published by French, but it didn't get, uh, didn't get a, a life. That one didn't. Then I started another one, but because I was a full-time agent, it took me four years to get the next one on. And that was Paris is Out. And that one, again, was David Black producing, but he wanted to see it in stock, so he did. Expedience, I was wrong, but you can do that when you're young. And How long did your, your play run on Broadway? Three and a half months. It was interesting. I have all the variety headlines because it ended, it started out with a very small advance. Mm -hmm. And every week of the 20 weeks, I think it ran, or maybe 15 weeks, every week the gross rose mm -hmm. to the point where the headline over the column was Broadway down, Paris up. Ah. I oh. love that headline. That's a great headline. In my scrapbook. Yeah. But we just got to like the break-even point, mm -hmm. and the house manager said to me, if you can get through Passover and Easter, which are coming up in April, you'll be here all summer because this is an audience play. Mm -hmm. And we got to Easter Sunday, and we had a blizzard. Oh. And, every, and three plays that were nervous hits like mine closed on that day. Three plays. It was The Private Lives with Tommy Grimes mm -hmm. and The Sheep on the Runway. Mm -hmm. A Bookwald play, Art Bookwald. Mm -hmm. all, all of them having run about three months. So that, I don't get bitter about that. That's just bad luck. Right. Neil Simon in his book talks about uh, Come Blow Your Horn with very mixed reviews. But it did have an audience. It never sold out. It made a very small profit, but it managed to squeak through with the, uh, the orchestrations, with the um, overhead for about a year. And also he had two lucky breaks, two very chic people. One was Noel Coward, he tells you this, and one was I've forgotten who, some society lady of prominence saw it and thought it was adorable. And they quoted this this big, and that gave it a little class because it didn't have much class around it. And therefore the, the house seat people would begin to come and see it. So that's just lucky. He, he would have written right. another play anyway. Right. What I should have done is what Terence McNally did. He had a play that ran a week and things that go bump in the night on Broadway, and he wrote another play a week later. And I took a few years off to right. re recover, you know. You're doing other things. You're doing exactly. other things, yeah. That's right, that's right. Now, how did you fall into your current role as a critic? That I fell into, actually. It was completely by chance. I was standing... Seems like a lot of things happened to well, you completely go, by no, chance. Well, yeah, but this in a great really, way, I mean, in a beautiful yeah, way. I love that. But you've got to be out there to have chance hit you Amen in the face. That. Yeah. I was standing in front of the um, what used to be the Biltmore Theater mm -hmm. and is now the uh, whatever the Manhattan Theater Club. Uh, there was a marquee up. Love Music was playing there. Uh, the Kurt Weill. Oh, oh, Love yes, Music, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at the poster and someone was standing next to me who was looking at the poster and he started to chat and we chatted and he was very garrulous like me 
And before we got through, he knew my name from other things I'd done. And he said, you love the theater as much as I do. And you should be working for us. I said, who was us? He was a critic for the Washington theaters, um, DC com. He wasn't the editor-in-chief, but he was a writer. And he said, you should be with us. You should be reviewing. You know everything about the theater. And he introduced me to Lorraine Trainer, his, his producing boss. And she took me on. I was there for several months when he left to go to DC Metro Theater Arts, which he founded. And he became the editor-in-chief. He took me with him. And I was there a year or two when he died. Poor darling died of a of cancer, something that came on very suddenly, terrible. He was my real mentor. He adored me and he was very kind to me. And um, so I stayed on after he, after he died, but when they replaced him with another editor, eventually it wasn't right for me. Mm -hmm. And then by sheer chance, because now at least I had credentials of right. a few years and a lot of reviews to show, this woman at the, um, Shoreline East heard of me and asked me if I'd be interested. So that's even better for me because I have a newspaper now that's in print. Yeah. Yeah. And to make sure, because it's only Shoreline East, it's only the Connecticut Shoreline mm -hmm. that gets the paper every week. They have about 100,000 people that get it wow. in, the, in the mail. And um, so I started my own site so that I could print every review because you can't print them all. Yeah. It's only a weekly newspaper. So well, that's how it became a critic, and I joined the uh, a critic circle out of critics when you have to have had a number of things published. So I submitted the reviews to them, and they made me a member. So now I have another union. Good for another you. Another career, right? Another career. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the musical you wrote? Yeah, that's a labor of love. Yeah. I, I started this completely from scratch. My mother used to, when she was a girl, she was born in America and born in New York, but her mother came from Europe, and somehow when my mother was a girl, she was given a lot of these Horatio Alger books. People of her generation at the turn of the century, he was very popular. The best-selling author in American history, like 20 million copies of his books. You know, Strive and Reach and uh, go, all those titles were Brave and Bold. Yeah. Uh, very positive immigrant images yeah. of the kid who has nothing, who's usually an orphan, lives in a box under the, on the sidewalk, right. is a boot black or a newsboy dealer, and makes a living and believes in, if you have guts and you try, you can do anything. This is America. It was very much in the hearts and minds of young immigrants like my mother. She was not an immigrant, but a new first generation American. And I always loved the idea of that, because I've kind of lived that way myself. If you want something badly enough and you try hard enough and stop kvetching, you can accomplish miracles. Um, so I decided to do it, and I read a few of the books. They were childlike, they were simplistic, but they all have the same theme. And there's one book called Silas Snobden's Office Boy, and there's another one called, I think, Rags to Riches. And I read that those two interested me most because the plot of one, but the characters in the other. So I, he's all in public domain. So I did one just called The Horatio Alger Musical. And it was based on Ragged Dick. That was the name of one of the books as well, Ragged Dick, because he wore rags all the time. Um, and because Ragged Dick can be a, not a very attractive term, yes. uh, we just called it Shine, because that's what he was. <laughs> he was a bo bootblack, you know. Yeah. 
And uh, I, I, I wanted to use one of the big name composers, but who knew me? I mean, I was an agent who was now writing a book at whatever age I was. It was 1980. How old was I? I was in my 50s, late 50s. So they, I couldn't go to Kander and Ebb and Bach and Harnick and all of those. I may have asked them, but I probably didn't because I didn't think that was realistic. So I looked for someone young and like I used to as an agent. And someone sent this man, Roger Anderson, to me as an ex-agent, thinking I could help him still. And he played me the score to a musical he'd written only the music to, not the lyrics or the book. But his music was exquisite and theater. And, I, and he was 28 years old or something. So I immediately latched on to him. I would have signed him as a client if I'd been an agent. But I really became his agent without, without uh, papers. And so I let him take a chance, and I said, who would you write lyrics with he didn't know? Because the one he was working with was not good enough. So I had had a client named Lee Goldsmith, who had written many things, including a musical based on Sheba, Come, Little, Come Back, Little oh, Sheba, yeah, yeah. which Kay Ballard did somewhere, uh, in, in, not in New York, I don't think. And Lee wrote a lot of things. He wrote a musical called Sextet, which had a brief run on Broadway. But he was a very clever lyricist. In the school of Fred Ebb, they were good friends in the beginning of time. He even wrote a lot of one of Fred's songs with him oh, without credit. Okay. But he, that doesn't mean Fred wasn't great, but they did work. They were very much alike, New York Jewish boys. And Lee was good and very well-read. He could do Shakespeare or Shaw and, and find lyrics for them. So I took a chance on a generation gap between Goldsmith and Anderson, sent Anderson to Florida to meet him. He lived in Florida. Now Lee, after trying a few musicals as a youngster, found a boyfriend that he's lived with forever. And he was strictly a businessman. And Lee didn't want to have to be in New York and Larry wanted to be in Florida. So he took another tack. He, he wrote cartoons. He wrote the dialogue for famous cartoons, I can't remember which ones, and he made a good living at it. And he'd write lyrics occasionally for some Saturday night in Florida, some event, you know, that kind of thing. I think he even wrote a couple of reviews that were done in Florida theaters, you know. But he was delighted to be attached to someone and me for a Broadway musical this time. And he wrote a damn good score. And we had very little trouble in finding a Broadway producer for it. It was kind of the buzz of the town. And the first, second or third person who heard it said, yeah. So we sold it to 20th Century Fox, which was pretty fancy. Yeah. And it came along with not only a dramatist guild contract, but a, 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 an option on a movie. And you should read the terms. You know, If it runs this long, you've got a million dollars. It was oh, if, if, if. if yeah. And so uh, we sold them the, the rights, and for the next year, we worked under that contract. They used a line producer in New York, because they're a Hollywood studio, named Henry Gettle, who's Adam Gettle's father, oh. Mary Rogers' husband. Yeah. And, and Henry loved it and bought it, and was the mentor. And we put together a team. We had uh, a, a set designer and a costume designer, Florence Klotz, mm -hmm. was gonna design it. Jeez. And it was going beautifully, and director, I don't know how it happened, but he was hot that week, was Vivian Madelon, who had just done um, oh, yeah. Mornings at Seven uh -huh. and had won a Tony Award. And then he did Brigadoon, a revival, which was mezzo-mezzo, but okay. And, and um, he adored it. 
I could have kicked his ass because he said, it's enchanting, I love it. And then he, then he signed the contract to be the director uh -huh. and then said, <coughs> the second act doesn't work, you know. <laughs> so we did it in Virginia and it was not a disaster. It did business, but it wasn't well received. And nobody came from New York to see it, nobody. My agent, who was Biff Liff, God rest his soul, but he was not helpful. He said, hey, I like it, very nice, needs work, see ya. And, and I never saw him again in my life. So that wasn't good. So he sort of died there. And I went on for the next 10 years trying to get it on at good speed and all those long war from all those theaters. We've come very close, but it was tarnished. It was a musical that didn't make it, you know. We've gone through phases of this with workshops and NYMF and YMF where it won a prize. Yeah. But it's very hard to get people to come and see these things. We did it at NIMP with Danny, uh, uh, you know, um, he, what's his name? Mientis, Andy Mientis. Oh, yes. oh, yeah. He was wonderful in it. He won a NIMP prize yeah. for that. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's the story of Shine and how I got to do it. Just, yeah. I started that one yeah. because of the, the, I still love the, the Alger philosophy of, of, you know, good guys win in the end. Well, it seems like you've, You've you've done that. You've lived. You're living proof. Yeah, of I'm that. not unhappy with my life. I don't no. consider it a failure because Shine didn't get on. But no, absolutely not. You you you're an integral part. And please, friends, you must read this book, um, supporting uh, supporting player player. Yeah. Supporting player. Uh, it is it is so good. I, I, I'm reading it and I'm halfway through it now. But I, I, I it feels nice. like it's a. Uh, like the the next generation of like Act One, you know the Moss Hart mm. book, it, because it, it what I really appreciate is how personal you are. You don't just talk about the the people you met and the people you worked with. You talk a little bit about what relationships were like. Oh, you talk about, and I really respect that because a lot of times we just I want to know what was what was it like to to go on a date in the forties. What was it like to go see shows? That's and you right. and you really go into the you must have have great notes of of this time period of your well, life. Mostly up, in my, or mostly up in my head, but I do have a million scrapbooks, and I have given them to the library. Oh, of, yeah. Uh, performing oh, arts library. Fantastic. That's yeah, they have all that stuff, and they will have the rest of it when I go. Because yeah. um, it is interesting. There oh, are, it's history. There are letters from people that, uh, many of them are thank you for your opening night wire. Yeah. They don't count. Right. But some of them are substantive. This has been so, so fantastic. Um, I cannot thank you enough for coming and joining us today. Oh, and I loved it. You know, really also, special. don't forget, you have to buy Richard's book. Um, which is available at um, Theater Circle. Theater Circle. I love if you go to them a plug. yeah, if you go to Theater Circle, it's always in the window. The book is called Supporting Player: My Life Upon the Wicked Stage. Um, we both own hard copies, but I also have a version on uh, Kindle. It's a fabulous book. And once again, a big thank you to our good friend, Mark Sendroff, who Thanks, sent Mark. Richard our way. We've been trying to get you for a long time, and I'm happy this happened. Um, so, buy the book, read the book. Thank you, Richard, for sharing so many wonderful memories with us today. I loved it. Thank you. Good. I'm happy you're happy. Um, till next time. Bye, everybody. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, 
Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.